This is the Make America Grape Again podcast, produced and recorded by Cody Burkett, the Arizona Wine Monk. In this podcast, we explore wines from all 50 states in the United States of America. Welcome to another episode of Make America Grape Again. I'm your host, Cody Burkett. And I'm Elizabeth Krecker. Who is not the host. Today is kind of a bonus episode. Or the first of season two, maybe, because we've visited California before with the pretty young thing, Cab Pfeffer. Today we're talking about the Dirty and Rowdy 2014 Simil Yung, which was skin and concrete egg fermented. This is from the Yungville Valley AVA in Napa. So this is the first Napa wine of the podcast. Uh, so Simil Yung, let us consult the big red wine book. So Semillon is kind of really only popular from two places out there in the world, in White Bordeaux and in the Hunter Valley of Australia. Until the 18th century, according to the Big Red Wine Book, Semillon was cultivated only in Sauternes region of Bordeaux, which is commonly considered to be its birthplace. Recent studies have suggested Semillon and Sauvignon Blanc are genetically very close, but not parent offspring, so probably siblings. It was used to breed of varietals Flora and Nora, Mid-ripening, moderate vigor, and maybe prune long or short, yields vary considerably according to the fertility of the vineyard. It's well adapted to gravel or calcareous clay soils, which kind of surprised me that there's not more of that in Arizona then. It strikes me, based on that soil description, that it might do well. But as far as I'm aware, there's only one vineyard in Arizona that's growing it. Uh, Napa, of course, is a, a region that really needs no introduction, because everyone knows Napa. <laughs> it's... I can count on two hands the amount of times that people have come in from Napa into the tasting room and have said something ignorant like, oh, we're from Napa, I bet you don't do anything good here in Arizona, harum harumph. But at the same time, when winemakers come and visit from Napa, they're, they're super geeky and super wonderful people. So it's really sad, too. I don't know if I told you this before, um, but I grew up in Napa. So I lived in Napa Valley back in the early 70s when no one had ever heard of Napa Valley. It was just like Arizona is now, you know. And um, we used to, I was 11 years old and I'd go to the tasting rooms and they'd give me a glass of wine because that's kind of how, just how laid back it was. And it was, it was spectacular. And you met the winemakers just like you do in Arizona when you go to a winery. It was so different. And now it's popularized with bottles stamped and sold and now you're selling it, now you're selling it, now you're selling it. But you know what? This winery is really unique when judging, at least by the label, and judging by what I've read about this wine. Um, it's really unique. I mean, it seems like it's a couple of guys who just kind of, just like they would might in Arizona. Yeah. Just kind of thought, gee, it'd be fun to make some wine. So let's make some wine. They the description of, of the guys in the, in the notes that you were reading earlier that she's going to read for us here on the podcast make me think a little bit, uh, not only of James Callahan, but also the, the folks at Iapetus. It did. This wine was made by a couple of bloggers. <laughs> so, People just like us. Exactly. So <laughs> so there's hope for us yet. There's hope for us yet. <laughs> One is a guy named Hardy Wallace. He ran the blog Dirty South Wine. The other is a guy named Matt Rowdy Richardson. Hence the name Dirty, Dirty and Rowdy. Rowdy. <laughs> uh, so this wine was skin and concrete egg fermented. We're going to talk about that fermentation a little bit here first before we get into uh, the main topic that we're going to use this wine for, which is talking about tasting notes. 
The notes, by the way, on the fact sheet say, um, do not serve the Simeon ice cold, which is good because we're not. Interestingly enough, they also suggest a one to two hour decant, which we're not, because my rule for this review program has been we're not decanting anything. I might decant it later on my own thing. Elizabeth is making positively almost orgasmic faces with this <laughs> wine over here. I just snuck a little sip while he was chit-chatting away, and this wine is so delicious. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> that's really fun. <laughs> we got a little distracted here. Sorry. Uh, tangent. Oh, so, but he continues, if unable to do so, even 15 minutes of air makes a significant difference. I'll let you describe the tasting notes. Would you like me to read from his letter? Yeah. So the writer of this article I was reading from LA Weekly sent him a note to ask him a few questions. And here's the letter. Here's a couple of things from the letter he wrote back. He said, I could lie and say we were Semillon Geeps, really into aged Hunter Valley Semillon. But we found a great vineyard with stony ass soil in an amazing location farmed by someone we knew and trusted. It could have been Scuppernong and we would have made it. Scuppernong, for, for those who don't know, um, what that is, that's a, a muscadine varietal known for notoriously sweet and ill-made wines coming from the American Southeast. <laughs> um, we will meet that grape, or maybe by the time this is podcasted uh, and uploaded, we have met that grape already, but that's neither here nor there. Okay, they thought that these two fermentations were going to be two separate wines because they fermented a batch in concrete egg and then they fermented a batch on the skin. Um, they thought it was going to be two separate wines, but then when they tasted it, they felt like they really brought, both brought a lot into one wine. So they ended up making it into one wine that they feel is 100% semillon. It's cloudy still, very cloudy. Part of that's due to the skin fermentation, but another part's due, well, apparently there was some kind of commotion moving the wine, which he didn't get into details, but yes. <laughs> we won't ask. <laughs> but here's the rest of his letter. Before bottling, Rowdy and I were convinced that this was the best of the three wines we made in 2011. It was what we wanted to drink, a textured, aromatic white, soil, mineral-driven, grown by a friend that keeps changing and evolving in the glass. In the wine-making process, we follow nothing added, nothing removed, minimal sulfur. Everything is done by hands and feet, and we'll opt for character over clarity. And we totally see that in this wine. Yeah. So the one vintage we're looking at now is a couple of years down the road where they realized that, oh, this is popular. We need to make this again and again and again. But it's interesting to see the origins of a particular idea of a yeah. wine, which I love. So for the 2014 vintage... 80% of the fruit was fermented on the skins in, in an open top tank through primary fermentation and then pressed off into old oak barrels. The other 20% of the fruit was pressed off immediately upon arrival to the winery into a concrete egg-shaped tank where it was fermented and rested until being blended with the skin-fermented lot before bottling. Native fermentation, so wild yeast, unfined and unfiltered, which we're seeing in the cloudiness of this wine. Minimal effective sulfites. So unlike our previous orange wine that we've looked at with the Iapetus, it's a completely different color. It's not orange at all. It's it's the golden yellow that you would expect from Semillon that makes me think almost of, of lemon rind um, or sunflowers in a meadow or daisies. Or apricots. Or apricots. Mm -hmm. But it is, again, very, very cloudy. Tasting notes for this vintage, which I think also cross with the notes that you got from the 2011 uh, online, which is, again, the, the main focus of where this are... Uh, Described here as atomized river stones, fennel bulb, basil lemonade, and Belgian sour aromatics. Lightweight with a broad palate filled with sweet and sour citrus and cool rock. 
And you were saying, uh, and reading the other one, what was the uh, description of, of the palette on the old one that you were reading earlier? Something about pickle and oh, jalapenos? yes. It was so interesting. He, sa he said that it smelled like jalapeno and pickles. And I thought, oh, seriously? That's a wine geek who just kind of made some junk up to entertain people? I sniffed it. It smelled like jalapenos and pickles. And I get pickle juice almost on, on yeah. the finish. yeah. But according to the to, according to this writer, it really opens up if you let it sit for two hours. So I recommend if you try this wine, you know, to, to try it, to open it, to, to drink it right out of the bottle, just like we just did, but also to let it sit for two hours. And I've noticed really that this is starting to change. Like right now I'm getting this character that's almost like licking, licking river rocks on the, on the mouthfeel. It's got this sort of calcareous character. Ooh, yes, it really does. It's also starting to get more fruit now that it's been sitting here for a little bit. Yeah. So tasting notes, which is kind of our main focus for this episode. You said you were in a song class, so why don't you talk to us a little bit about that and how everyone gets the same thing but different. Well, it's interesting. I, I passed the introductory psalm, so that puts me in line to get the certified psalm, but it's not easy to get. So I'm part of a group that's, that works out of Tarbells, and there's about 30 of us total in this group, although not all 30 show up on any given day. It might be 15 or 20. And, um, and we're all sipping the same wines, and we're all tasting together. That's a lot of people to taste with. And we're generally in the same family we, when we taste, but we never taste the same things. I might taste apples and pears and maybe a little lemon, and you might taste you know, a very specific kind of apple. Maybe I taste green apple, you taste golden apple. Maybe I taste yellow pear and you're tasting, you know, red delicious. It's just interesting. We're not really tasting, we're tasting it kind of in the same family, but we're not tasting the same thing. And I think that just goes to the uniqueness and individuality of people's palates and also people's interpretation of what they're tasting. Which ties into, you know, philosophical tangents. What is an apple and what does it taste like? Or, you know, what makes a Semillon taste like a Semillon and not like a Sauvignon Blanc? And where is the crossover mm -hmm. and all these other things? Well, and people have actually have studied the chemical attributes of wine. So they know that a terpene smells like this and a pyrazine smells like that. And these are all ingredients that are in wine. But this, which is true for some, but in others, they, they don't have that same sort of molecular makeup. You know, when you're smelling a, a strawberry in a wine, it doesn't, it's not the actual molecule that makes that smell of a strawberry in a strawberry. Pyrazine, which is the same chemical in both green peppers and California cab that's underripe. Well, and actually that's not necessarily true because there's ester, I mean, there's other chemicals. There's esters and, and esters in particular is kind of what I'm thinking of that tend to, like there's certain esters that are going to smell like strawberry. You're going to see the same esters in a wine that you see in a strawberry that cause you to smell the same thing. Isn't that interesting? That is. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, everyone's getting something different. Right? Yeah. If you and I were to sit on opposite sides of uh, this Airbnb, come up with tasting notes, it'd be interesting to see what we got that was the same and what we got that was different and how our, our wearing different. Well, I think part of it, too, is that what we taste is like on a completely different side of the brain than the words we use. This is true. So, and that makes it really challenging because you're tasting something. What am I tasting? I don't know. Mm, herbs. Because that's just kind of what came to mind, right? Yeah. Maybe it was right. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe you're actually tasting something that's not herbs. You know what I mean? Maybe it's in it was bark, but herbs are for whatever reason what you came up with. So some of what we're doing in the psalm group is learn to taste. 
I mean, you say, well, gosh, I can taste anything, right? I suppose. Yeah, but can you... Attach words to it. Exactly. And are you attaching? And so that's part of what we're learning, too. Because psalms uh, have very specific words that kind of denote very specific flavors, from my understanding. And also codes, like black currant bud uh, for cat urine. Um, so I've heard, which is you know, a big, that one. <laughs> which is a big thing, I guess, in in New Zealand Sau Blanc huh. because that has that sort of character, and so as to not scare away people who read the tasting notes, it's been kind of accepted that we'll all refer to this as black currant bud. We all know what it means, really, <laughs> ha ha ha, as we elbow each other in, in the corner and giggle like little school kids, like. <laughs> But, you know, the average person coming in off the street into a winery sees that on a tasting menu. They don't, they don't know what that means. They're just going to think they don't want to taste that. Ugh. Yeah. So they're like, <laughs> oh, black currant bud. That makes it acceptable to taste. It sounds yummy, actually. Well, and that is true because that's the other thing we're learning, too. We may be talking about all these geeky sort of wine things, but when we're talking to a table, you know, we're serving in a restaurant, we're talking to a table, we're not talking about those geeky wine things because the table doesn't want to hear it. Yeah. We just want to know, does it taste good? Yeah. And that's really, again, boils down to the crux of wine. And I love showing off my geekiness in the tasting room or in my writings, that sort of thing. It's not what everyone wants. So when you go into a tasting room, it's really interesting. Or I should say, when you're working in a tasting room, it's really interesting because you get some people that are trying to taste everything that's on the tasting notes. And I don't know about your wineries, uh, if you own wineries, uh, listeners. Our tasting notes for uh, Passion and Salvatore are uh, us sitting together and coming up with literally everything we taste and coming up with a coherent narrative. So, and some of these are like, well, we've decanted and had this glass open. For, for an hour, how has it changed? Okay, so now it has rose petals. We're going to throw rose petals on the descriptor. And, and people are like, oh, I get that. Or people are like, I don't get rose petals. This description is wrong. <laughs> and, and then they get very indignant about it, about not tasting this character. And it's, you know, it, it makes it very interesting to try and explain this. Well, uh, tasting notes are like guidelines, really. Yes, they, they are important, but... At the same time, they're not important because what matters more is what do you, drinking this wine, taste and do you like this wine that you're tasting? Mm -hmm. I think the other thing to really think about too is what would it taste good with? Yeah. You know, would this wine be good with chocolate? Honestly, I want to pair this with KFC fried chicken. <laughs> you know what? I'm with you on that one. It's funky crazy? and weird and yeasty, but at the same time, you know what that makes me think of? Fried chicken. And I really am now craving fried chicken. <laughs> Suddenly I am too. <laughs> I'm Bourneville to get it. Well, we'll just have to save that for another trip. <laughs> well, on that note, while we uh, are craving Ducky Fried Chicken, and now that you are as well, who is not a sponsor of this podcast, Cough, send me money, KFC. Um, we will let you go. We hope you enjoyed this little discussion on the philosophical nature of wine descriptors. Until next time, let's make America great again. This was an episode of the Make America Grape Again podcast, sponsored, produced, and recorded by Cody Burkett, the Arizona wine monk. You can reach us at makeamericagrapepodcast at gmail.com on Instagram at, at the AZ Wine Monk, or on Twitter at CV Burkett. Be sure to also check out our website, MakeAmericaGrapeAgainPodcast.com.
I am Elizabeth Krecker with the fabulous photographer Janelle Bonifield. I am writer of the soon to be published Arizona Wine, the vineyards, wineries, and winemakers of the Grand Canyon State. You can find out more about my travels in the wine world at grapeexploration.com.